Wednesday. Well, good morning. This morning, we are going to start our series of studies in the book of Revelation. And when people think of the book of Revelation, they think of all kinds of very strange visions, and they think of things that they don't understand. I want to assure you, having taught this book a number of times, the one thing you will do as we study this book is understand. And I can promise you that because the book itself promises us that we can read and understand the words in this book. I've actually heard pastors say, and people say, oh, the, the, the book of Revelation is hard to understand. I disagree. It is a challenge to study, but it's not difficult to understand. And so as we begin this series of studies, which we'll be in for quite some time, having started with Daniel first, we made our way through the book of Daniel over the last couple of months. If you've been a part of these studies or you've been listening online, you are well prepared to understand the words of this book. And listen, we're not trying to predict the future. In fact, we're not even really talk too, too much about the future until we get to chapter four anyway, maybe even chapter six. So I don't want you to think about the future. I want you to think about your present. I want you to be focused in on your relationship with God. Because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the revelation of things to come. It's not the revelation of world events that we anticipate. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, if you know Jesus, Jesus will be revealed to you through this study. You will gain a better understanding of who he is, his power, his worthiness, his righteousness, his goodness, his kindness, his compassion, his grace, and his mercy. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study. We thank you for this time in your word. We now ask in the name of Jesus that you would open our ears, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. Open our eyes to see the world in which we live and to see how many of these things are already starting to be fulfilled that are contained in this book. But Lord, give us the ability spiritually as we receive this unveiling, this revelation of who you are, give us minds that can clearly understand to the degree that we can in this life your love for us, your great love for all creation, and your desire to draw us near in relationship to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to spend just a few minutes going through an introduction to this book. It's not a lengthy introduction, but it's important to mention, again, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is God's revelation of Jesus, communicated through a messenger or an angel to the apostle John. And <clears throat> this is John the Beloved, John who we know wrote the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John that are included in our New Testament. He was a first-century circuit minister, that is, someone who went from place to place ministering the gospel and teaching God's word, and he is simply the messenger of this book. So some people will look at this book and say, this book is nothing like John's gospel or his epistles, which were clearly written by the same person. So they sometimes come to the conclusion that this John is a different John. But it's not because it's a different John. It's because John didn't write this book as much as he recorded this book. There are sections that you can see 
John wrote little commentary, little, little comments, and we'll, we'll cover those. But the book as a whole is not John's work. It is him recording the revelation that was given to him through an angel from Jesus Christ, actually from God himself, a revelation of Jesus through an angel. So this book is a general epistle. That is, it wasn't written just to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, but it was written to all Christians throughout the ages. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit would not have included this in our Bibles. Some people say, well, it was only written to those seven churches, therefore, unless you were a member of one of those churches, uh, it really doesn't have any value. But we'll see very clearly in this study that that's not true. Now, as far as the authenticity of this book, this book was written during the 15th year of the Emperor Domitian, That puts it about 95 to 96 AD. John was very old when he wrote this book. He was among the youngest of the apostles, and he was the one that lived the longest. In fact, as far as we know, history tells us he was the only apostle who didn't die a martyr's death. He was persecuted, but as far as we know, he was not martyred. Now, secular historical evidence supports the dating of this book as well. So if It's not just a question of we say it was written then. There is much written to support that truth. In fact, it's found in literature written immediately after the apostolic age. And for that to be the case, you would understand that it would have had to have been written earlier. So some people will say it's written much later by someone else. But there's no proof of that at all. In fact, to the contrary. Now, I don't want to get too, too much into this. But one of the things you'll find in various churches you'll find that different denominations, different schools of theology, will teach this book radically differently. It will be very different. So I'm going to show you that there are at least four major schools of of theology that approach this extremely differently. So, for example, there's a group of people called the preterists. Now, preterist is a word that kind of indicates the past. And the preterists believe that everything contained in this book pertains to the church of 95-96 AD. What I said already is that some people believe that it was just written to these seven churches. It really doesn't have anything for anyone else. And so they kind of look at it and say, well, we don't understand really what it means, but we feel that whatever it meant, the people who received it understood it, and they're content to move on. Then, of course, you have another school of thought called the continuous historical Uh, approach. Uh, This is a way of looking at the book of Revelation where you believe all of the things that are contained in it are events pertaining to the entire history of the church throughout the centuries. So when they look at the entire book, they look at the different things that are given in vision, and they look at the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, and they match up the events of the book with historical events. Whether that is easy to do or not isn't as important as you understand that that's how they approach it. And so when they look at something about Babylon, they're they're thinking of something that took place already for the most part. Then there is the spiritualist approach. And this has become a very popular way of looking at the book because when you don't understand something, it's easy to say, well, there must be some spiritual application. So you look at the book and you don't really understand it and you try to find some kind of meaning in it. Now, you can do that. It's very important to understand the word of God is rich. It's like an onion. You peel it and there's layer and layer and layer and layer. So a lot of these things are somewhat true anyway. 
I mean, you can read any portion of God's word and it will deal with the past. You can read any portion of God's word and you can apply it to things that have taken place in history. And you can certainly take God's word and make spiritual application. That means you're reading something that Paul wrote to Timothy. It wasn't written to you. And yet you're able to look at that, read that, digest it, and receive something from God through it. So I'm not saying you can't look at it this way. But when you look at something simply or only from a spiritualistic viewpoint, you miss the prophetic element of the book. That's all I'm saying. Now, we here, so I mentioned preterist, continuous historical, and spiritualist, pretty self-explanatory. But there's a final way to approach this book, and it is the way that Calvary Chapel teachers teach this book. Not all churches approach it this way. There are many good churches that don't agree, and that's fine. I am just going to share with you up front that we will see all of those different elements, spiritual application, looking at the past. We will look at the history of the church. We'll do that. But we believe that the Bible itself teaches us how to interpret the Bible. In fact, it's been said that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So we approach it in this way. We look at this book through the lens of a futuristic approach. Doesn't mean everything in it is in the future, but futuristic in that When John wrote it, it was written about things that would take place in the future. Some of those things have already taken place. Some of those things have yet to take place. Much of this book has yet to take place, as far as I'm concerned. But having said that, before we even get into our study, I want you to make note of chapter 1, verse 19. This is the key. Now, have you ever looked at a map? You have a little box on that map, and in that key which is called a key. In that key, you'll see things like highways are red, or this is an inch is four miles or five miles. The key helps you to understand the map. Otherwise, you don't know what you're looking at. This is the key to the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19. John is told, and we'll get to this next week, but John is told in verse 19 to write. And of course he did. Write, therefore, what you have seen. Well, it's not hard to imagine... If you're writing at the end of chapter 1, what you have seen would have been chapter 1. Then he goes on to say, what is now and what will take place later? And that relates to chapters 2 and 3. For you see, chapters 2 and 3 deal with the seven churches, called the seven churches of Revelation, and clearly are written to people alive at that time. But notice it doesn't just say what is now, it also says, and what will take place later. Because when you get into those chapters, chapters 2 and 3, there are things that point to the future symbolically. But once you hit chapter 4, all the way through chapter 22, that is the end of the book, you're looking from a futuristic standpoint at things that have yet to take place. Or it says here, what will take place later. So you can divide the book of Revelation with the futuristic approach into three sections. Chapter 1, which we're in today and tomorrow, uh, and next week, will be in for uh, uh, two weeks. And then we get to chapters 2 and 3. We'll be there for seven weeks or seven churches. We'll take a church each week. And then we get to chapter 4, and we'll be in that section from chapter 4 to chapter 22 for quite a while. All right, so nothing too confusing yet, right? That's pretty easy to understand. That would be our table of contents or our key to unlocking 
the study of this book. And another thing I want to mention is that the book is sometimes referred to, a little pet peeve of mine, as the book of Revelations, plural. Please don't say that around me. It is Revelation singular because it's the revelation not of things but of a person. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some Bibles, and you may have a Bible here this morning, even go so far as to say the revelation of St. John the Divine. Because they believe that St. John the Divine, the writer of the book of Revelation, is different than the writer of the Gospels and the Epistles. But there's nothing divine about John. The revelation is divine, but it came to John and through John to us. And so it is the book of Revelation. And in Latin, it's Revelateo. In Greek, it's Apocalypsis. We have that in Spanish as well, Apocalypsis. And so what does that word mean? It's where we get the word apocalypse from, by the way. It means, actually, you think when you think of apocalypse, you think of something horrible, right? You think of the end of the world, right? But that's just by association. The word actually means the unveiling or removing of a veil. I have been to the auto show in New York a number of times. And oftentimes at the auto show on the first night for the press, they will have a car that has been covered in a sheet. And everybody's very excited to see what's under it. And at a certain moment, they have the apocalypsis, the unveiling, and you finally get to see what's underneath this covering. That's what the word revelation means. And it makes sense because reveal comes from the word revelation. So I want you to get away from thinking the word revelation or the word apocalypsis or apocalypse is actually a bad word. They're actually good words. They reveal Jesus Christ in this book. And so the purpose of this book is to bring understanding about Jesus Christ so it is meant to be understood. That's the other pet peeve I have, is that people will say, oh, you can't understand the book of Revelation, or it's too difficult to understand. Oh, I have trouble understanding. Listen, it's challenging at times, but the book is meant to be understood. In fact, in this book, it says of itself that it was written to show his servants what must soon take place. It was also written in this way, in chapter 1, we'll see this, that blessed is the one who reads, hears, and takes to heart what is written. So you're blessed if you understand. So if God promises a blessing to those that understand and you can't understand it, well, what kind of blessing is that? We're also told at the end of this book, John is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Many people never read this book, they seal it up, and that is exactly not what God has told us to do. We're also told at the end of this book that blessed is the one who keeps the words of this book, and so how are you going to keep the words of this book unless you read and understand them? And of course, over and over again, in chapters 2 and 3, we're told, he who has an ear, do you have an ear? Check if you have an ear. Do a Carol Burnett this morning. You have an ear? Well, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if you have an ear, if you can hear, God wants to speak to you. Now, I'm not going to deny that the book is highly symbolic. Yet, all of the symbols are explained throughout the Old and New Testaments. You just need to know where to look. You need to have a glossary of terms. You need to know when symbols are presented in the book of Revelation, you need to know where does that symbol show up in the rest of the Bible. So I will admit it is difficult to teach this book if you haven't studied the whole Bible. 
Fortunately, I've been at this a little while, and I can afford you some degree of understanding of the symbols and present them to you as we go through the study. But all of them are explained in the scriptures. It is one continuous revelation. It's not a group of revelations. However, there are several great themes, and I'll give you just a little teaser here. Some of the themes, the church, the body of Christ, the resurrection and the translation or rapture of the saints, the great tribulation, which we've talked so much about in our studies in Daniel, Satan and demonic power. It's talked about quite a a bit in this book, and for that reason, people get spooked out by it. The man of sin or the antichrist, the other antichrist, the false prophet, the destruction of the Gentile world power. That'll be covered to a great degree in the latter part of the book. The redemption of the earth. God redeeming the earth. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's certainly covered, chapter 19. The judgment of sinners, which takes place in chapter 20. The first resurrection in the kingdom age, that is the promise to all those that trust in Christ. The new heavens and the new earth, which are presented at the end of the 1,000 or 1,000 year reign of Christ, the millennium, we see the new heavens and the new earth, and finally the eternal state, which takes place throughout eternity. It's what we're looking forward to. So those are some of the themes. And with that as an introduction, I think you need to know very little more than that to get into the study of this book. But having said that, let's take a little time. Let's look at chapter one. This is really our introduction today. In chapter 1, in verses 1 through 3, this is quite literally an introduction, for it says in verse 1, this is John writing, letting us know what happened and why he's writing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel or his messenger, the word is the same in Greek. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Well, it was near 2,000 years ago, or not quite 2,000 years ago, but nearly 2,000 years ago it was near, much nearer today. Let's just look at that introduction As I've said, this is the revelation of the unveiling of Jesus Christ. God gave this revelation to Jesus. He did. God the Father gave it to God the Son. And we're told right up front, it concerns what must soon take place. Now, how soon? Well, some of the things took place very quickly. Some of the things have yet to take place. But it concerns not only what must soon take place, as the introduction tells us, primarily it concerns Jesus So if you approach the book of Revelation and a study in it as, I want to know more about Jesus, you're going to be blessed. Anytime you approach the word of God and say, I would really love to know Jesus more. I would love to learn more about Jesus. You're going to find that in every book of the Bible, but especially this book. And of course, Jesus sent his angel or messenger to his servant, John, to make it known to us. God, the Holy Spirit, went to a great extent to communicate this to John, that he might write it down, not so that we can ignore it, or when we get to the end of the book of Jude, sort of take a a left turn and go back to Genesis. This is a very important study in God's word. Now, unfortunately, I know people that only study this book, and that would be a mistake. 
But this book is important to us. So John, in this revelation, testifies of Jesus. He testifies that this is, what he's sharing is, the word of God. The word of God. What is the word of God? Well, the word of God is God's message. It's, it's what God wants to say to us. That's true of any aspect of the Word of God. All of the Word of God is God's message to us. So when you come to church on a Sunday morning or Wednesday evening and you study the Word of God, you're studying words that were written down that intentionally share with you the Word of God. In and of themselves, they are letters on a page, but because they communicate or encapsulate or capture God's desire to communicate to you, it's more than just words on a page. In any language that you understand, the word of God communicates to you God's thoughts, his vision, his will, his ways, what pleases him, what displeases him, what's good for you, what's bad for you. It's God's message. But John in verse 2 not only tells us that it's God's message, He confirms that this word that he received is the testimony of Jesus. It's the testimony of Jesus. So in addition to communicating God's message, it communicates or reveals God's person. And that's the two ways that you want to look at this book. But actually, it's the two ways you want to look at any book in the Bible. Notice he says in verse 2, after introducing himself, says, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So when you study the word of God, that's it. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there are people that study the word of God as the word of God, but they're not looking for Jesus. And they come up short. And there are people that look to learn about Jesus, but aren't really interested in his message. In that case, they come up short. You need both. You need to know what God said, and you need to know who God is if you're going to receive the faith that comes by hearing the word of God. Can I hear an amen? Those are the two balances, balance points. that You have to have that balanced approach where it's not just studying what God said, but studying who God is. Because Jesus is the word of God. But there's a message that Jesus shared and a person that he is, and those two things are are the primary purposes of studying God's word and why John wrote down this revelation. As I've said already in verse 3, there is a blessing. You want to be blessed? Say amen. I want to be blessed. And if the Bible tells me that reading this book will bless me, well, then I'm going to read it. Oh, no, Pastor Tim, I can't read this book before I go to bed. I'll have weird dreams. Well, that's not the point of studying this book. It says in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Very important word. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Right there, that tells you that it's a prophetic book. It's no question. You can't look at this book any other way. The introduction gives us the understanding that it's a prophecy. A prophecy. A revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is a blessing, the result of reading hearing, and applying this book's message. It is a blessing to be prepared for Christ's imminent return. Amen? It's a blessing to be prepared. The Word of God prepares us for the coming of Christ, but this book, in some ways, more than any other. So by reading, we'll understand God's plan. You want to know God's plan? 
Reading this book will help you to understand God's plan. And by understanding, we will prepare ourselves for God's plan. See, so many people know what, what's right. They know what God intends to do, but they're not preparing themselves for what's about to happen, what will soon take place. So as we study the word of God, as we hear God's message, as we learn about who Jesus is, that's just what goes in. What comes out is how we respond to the study. The output, the throughput, if you will, is that we will understand God's plan. That's great. But that we'll also, because we understand God's plan, prepare ourselves for God's plan. So this is as much about preparation as it is about understanding. I often think about when I'm fixing something, which I seem to do a lot around here. I usually will read the user's manual. I've learned... The best thing to do when you buy a new coffee machine, for example, we just got a new one over here in the coffee room. The best thing you can do is read the user's manual first. If you buy a piece of furniture from Ikea, read the directions first. Because here's the thing. There's a little section in most manuals that says troubleshooting. Have you noticed that? Nobody ever reads that except for maybe me. Troubleshooting. Most people don't go to the troubleshooting until something's gone wrong. You know what I do? I read it up front so that when something goes wrong, and something always goes wrong, I can say, ooh, wait a minute. I think I know what the problem is. See, I I think we need to approach the Bible in that way. We need to have a, a troubleshooting approach so that when people, wait a minute, is there a scripture for this? Are we supposed to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have? I think Peter told us that. So it's on good authority that we understand things ahead of time. We don't wait till someone comes to us and says, oh, pastor, or, oh, brother, uh, could you explain this to me? He said, you know, I'd love to, but I have no idea. I'll have to go check with my pastor. And then I get an email. And the person asks me a question. And that's wonderful. Because if you don't know, that's probably a good way to go about it. But wouldn't it have been better if that person was prepared to give an answer for the hope that they have? Oh, you may not be able to answer all the ins and the outs of prophecy, but you should be able to give an answer for the hope you have. Actually, we're told we need to. and So that's one of the things that this book blesses us with. It's also a blessing to understand the symbols that are used throughout the scriptures. One of the things that I found is, as I studied the book of Revelation, I had to learn about the symbols throughout the Old and New Testaments, mostly Old Testament. And I therefore understood the Old Testament better. And then as I understood and studied the Old Testament, I started to understand the New Testament better. And then as I studied the New Testament, I understood the Old Testament. And then I studied the Old Testament, I understood the New Testament. And you know what? I started to have the whole counsel of God because I understood both. So many people look at the Old Testament, they think, yeah, that's kind of neat. That was then, this is now. The problem with that is if you look at your Bibles and you open them up, to where the book of Malachi ends and where Matthew begins, you're going to find out something that I learned very early on. And that is that the Old Testament is two-thirds of your Bible. So you're missing two-thirds of God's message, two-thirds of his revelation, two-thirds of a revelation of his person, if you ignore the Old Testament. So I'm really hoping that one of the blessings you'll receive through a study in Revelation is that you'll want to study the Old Testament more. That's certainly how it happened for me. 
Okay. It's a blessing to understand those symbols, which can be enigmatic or mysterious, but it's also a blessing. And here's the number one reason why it's a blessing. Not quite a top 10 list, but there are a few. It is a blessing because the time is nearer today than it was when John recorded these things. So certainly the time is near. I mean, we were told because the time is near, the time is nearer than it was then, and it was near then. So I can come up with all of these reasons for why it's a good thing for us to be in the Word of God in the book of Revelation this morning. Now, as we get into the next section, this is really where the book sort of starts. We read in verses 4 through, actually, we'll just look at verse 4. There's maybe the beginning of 5. John, and I always like the fact that in the New Testament letters, and this is a New Testament letter, Unlike the way that we often write letters, handwritten letters, you know who's writing before it's sent, right? You write up front. What do you do when you read a letter? Unless it's written in a formal way and you see it at the top, the, the return address, or, you know, in a business letter, sometimes they'll put that up front. For the most part, a letter or a handwritten note is written to the person, and then you get all the way to the end, and it says, loving, you know, in love, or love sincerely, in Christ, in him— but you don't know that till you get to the end unless you jump ahead. So the better way to do it is to put your name up front. And isn't that wonderful that in email, that's exactly what they do. Text and email tell you right up front who's it from so you can ignore it if you want to. In this case, we don't want to ignore it. But we read John 2, the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit, before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now this introduction is not only an introduction, it's a revelation in and of itself. See, John wrote to the seven churches. These seven churches were located in the Roman province of Proconsular Asia. We talked about it when we studied the book of Acts. That's western Turkey today. And John sends grace and peace, which is at the beginning of just about every epistle written in the New Testament, grace and peace from the triune God. There are some that don't believe that God is one God in three persons. But there are too many examples in Paul's writings, and certainly here in Revelation, that make it clear that God is revealed to us as one God in three persons. So what we've done is, in the church, we've come up with a word to describe what the Bible reveals. God in three persons. One God in three persons. And we use that word Trinity. And people that don't like that word will say, well, the the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. No, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But God, one God and three persons revealed in the Bible, that that is true. So it's important. It's just a word that captures the thought. You don't need to use the word Trinity to describe God. You can say triune God, and that would be accurate as well. But notice in the the first section, uh, we're told that it's written to the seven churches. But then in that next section, it says, Grace and peace to you from him who was, excuse me, him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And we all know that that speaks of the eternal Godhead, that speaks of God. No one is really confused by that. However, you'd be missing it if we left it there. For this is an expression of grace and peace by John from 
God the Father. God the Father. You see, the word, the name of God, Yehovah, or Yahweh, we're not exactly sure how it's pronounced. But this word, Yehovah, is a compound word. It's derived from three other words. And guess what those three words mean? He who is, who was, and is to come. The very name of God, Jehovah, is a compound that expresses each of those three truths about God. And that's true of the Godhead, but in this case, we're referring to Jehovah God the Father. And by the way, to try to express that, and it's very difficult to express that in our language, but even in Hebrew, they, they, they came up with one word. And uh, they respected this word, the name of God, so much that unlike other words in Hebrew, they eliminated the vowels or the vowel markings, and they left us only with the consonants. So when you read this in Hebrew, when you get to the name of God, they won't even say the name of God. The scribes would say Shem or the name. They, they won't even say that. Sometimes you'll receive an email or read something online from a very devout Jewish person. And if they refer to God, they'll put capital G dash D. That's, again, out of respect for God, the name of God. You'll see that often. Some of the things I read online, I'll see that often from Jewish scholars. Just G, little slash, hyphen, D. Well, the Jews did the same thing. They had Y-H-V-H, or Y-H-W-H. Not really a W, it's more of a V, but Y-H-V-H. This comes up in Exodus 3. Y-H-V-H. Now, for that reason, and the reason that we don't have the vowel markings, some people say, oh, let's put the vowels in. Yahovah. And then some people say, no, 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 Yahweh. We really don't know. I'm good with either. Just don't say revelations. <laughs> so what the Jews did is they translated this, I am. I am that I am. But actually, in the original language, it's YHVH, YHVH. You're not really saying I am, but I am captures the essence of he who was, is, and is to come. That is, I am. I always was, and I always will be, but I am. And so that's why we say the great I am. There was never a time where he wasn't I am. And if you understand the verb, even in English, you understand why they decided to use that in our Bibles, I am. But it's YHVH. So, grace and peace from God the Father. That's pretty clear, I hope, by now. But then we get to the next section here, and it says, from the seven spirits before his throne. Wait a minute, Pastor Tim, seven spirits? I know there's seven churches. I know there's seven stars which represent the messengers of those churches, but seven spirits? Well, actually, the word can be translated sevenfold spirit. And I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to figure out if God the Father and God the Son are mentioned in the same paragraph, it's not hard to imagine who the sevenfold spirit is. It's not hard to imagine. But why call him the sevenfold spirit? Well, first of all, the number seven throughout the scriptures is an indication of God's perfection. He created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. So there's seven. Seven comes up a lot. It's a, it's a number that points toward God. However, there is a scripture. I don't want to make too much of this, but uh, I do find this very interesting. In speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, called the branch by Isaiah in chapter 11, 
We're told that the Spirit of the Lord would rest on Jesus, on the coming Messiah. This is written about 700 years before Christ appeared. We're told in verse 2 of chapter 11 in Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So there you have a sevenfold spirit, a sevenfold working of the Holy Spirit, described in the book of Isaiah in seven ways. That's not the only place, but that's the most obvious place to recognize that the Holy Spirit is God. He is God. And the sevenfold working of the Spirit only points to his deity as a person, one of three persons in the Godhead. One God, three persons. So there are not seven spirits before his throne, but he is the sevenfold spirit. And the sevenfold working of the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit who baptized Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Okay? Then the next part is very easy to understand because it is clear. We see in verse 5, first part, and from Jesus Christ, who is, and he's described in three ways. Now, isn't that interesting? You got three persons in the Godhead, but this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? So then you get to Jesus at this point, the, the third person. He's presented third, but he's the son, generally the second person of the Godhead. But regardless, they're all equal. And what happens? He describes him in three ways. Again, a subtle indication that Jesus is God. Jesus is one of the three persons of the Godhead, but he's also described in three ways. Again, numbers have meaning, and they emphasize things. I learned that when I started studying martial arts, and I don't really speak Japanese, but a lot of what we do is in Japanese, and there are some numbers that are considered lucky numbers, and there are some numbers that are considered like bad numbers. So there are various different ways to say certain numbers, because cultures associate certain ways of thinking with certain numbers. And that may not always be true in English, although, have you ever heard of Friday the 13th? You know, there's some people that live on the 13th floor, but it's actually the 14th floor on their elevator. This happens because people have a sort of negative connotation with the number 13, so I guess it does happen in our culture. That's probably not the only example. But the reason I mention that is because it's, it, it doesn't fall on deaf ears. We're, we're speaking about a triune God, and then we get to the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he's presented in three ways. There's an emphasis there, a repetition that is intentional. For you see, we learn there that this is grace and peace from God the Father, grace and peace from the Holy Spirit, but also grace and peace from the Son, Jesus Christ. And John tells us in these three ways, he was the faithful witness. What does that mean, the faithful witness? Well, the faithful witness means that he lived his life on this earth, the incarnation, that is, he became a man and witness testified to us who God is and who we can be in him. He is the witness. His incarnation, his becoming a man, his life a witness to God. And that is one of the greatest things we can say about Jesus, that he became a man, the God-man. Well, then it's also written here that he's the firstborn of the dead. And the firstborn from the dead indicates his resurrection. 
And, and clearly, if you're talking about his virgin birth and then you talk about his resurrection, we're hitting the, the top issues as it relates to Jesus' deity, the top indicators of his deity, his resurrection, which proved his power and God's approval. And then finally, and this is at the moment my favorite, I like them all, but this is the one that I focus in on at the moment because I'm waiting for it, and you probably are as well, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Can I hear an amen? Wouldn't you love it if in the midterms or perhaps in 2024, Jesus was on the ballot? He's not, and he won't be, I assure you, unless the Lord returns before then. There may be some who know Jesus, some that hate Jesus, but Jesus won't be on the ballot. But here's what's going to happen. When we refer to him, or as John refers to him as the ruler of the kings of the earth, listen, listen, check this out. This has everything to do with him coming again to rule and reign on the earth. And so if you're thinking about Jesus in that threefold way, there you go. He became a man. He died. Rose again. And is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Sound familiar? I think someone wrote a creed like that. Well, in this section, and we'll close with this, John gives all praise to Jesus as the Son of God. And Rachel's going to come up and lead us in praise and it's, it's appropriate that we should end this way. In verses 5 through 8, he writes, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. A wonderful doxology of praise, declaring why we should praise Jesus. Why? Well, he wrote it right there. Because he loves us. We've talked about who he is, but because he loves us. Because he freed us from our sins by his blood. Because he's made us to serve in his kingdom, serving God the Father. And because he's worthy of our praise, we praise him. And then he says in verse 7, look, he's coming with the clouds. Oh, how often it's described in that way, the coming of Christ in the clouds. And every eye will see him and even those that pierced him. Who pierced him? Well, the Romans pierced him. The Jews wanted him pierced, but we're all guilty of having pierced him. Our sins pierced him. Every eye will see him, and even those that pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, another amen, amen. Apparently John was a Pentecostal. Listen, he declares that Jesus is coming again. Amen. He's coming again in the clouds. And all people, Gentiles, Jews, all will witness his return and mourn. As Zechariah tells us in chapter 12, they'll mourn for him whom they have pierced, speaking of the Jews, even as one mourns for an only son. We'll get to that. Finally, in verse 8, he says, I am, quoting Jesus, I am the uh, Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now that's from Jesus. And that points out that he is God the Father and God the Spirit. They are one. For he declares that Jesus is God, the Son of God, but God. He is declaring himself, Jesus is declaring himself to be God, the Creator, the Alpha and the Omega. God, Jehovah, the Great I Am. And God, the Almighty, the All-Powerful El Shaddai. Is it the revelation of things to come? No, not at all. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ.
Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. And maybe we know you a little bit more and know about you a little bit more than we did. But Lord, as we study in your word, reveal to us your love for us, your great love for us. Reveal to us the truth of who you are and the message you have for us. Oh Lord, we pray that every heart here would see the truth of the triune God and those three things that are presented about Jesus. That he came, that he died, that he rose again. That he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And may we give our hearts to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.